Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the storming of Brazil's Parliament, Supreme Court and Presidential Palace by Bolsonaro's supporters, 1,200 of whom were arrested in what is being compared to the January 6th insurrection, although Brazil's January the 8th coup attempt is paltry, if not pathetic, in comparison. Joining us is Andre Pagliarini, a professor of history at Hamden Sydney College, who is currently preparing a book manuscript on 20th century Brazilian nationalism, and we'll discuss his article at the New Republic, The Pro-Bolsonaro Riot in Brasilia Was Nothing Like the January 6th Insurrection, For Better and Worse. Then we'll look into how Kevin McCarthy, who has profusely thanked Trump, has been installed as speaker by the same oligarchy that financed Trump and the MAGA Republicans to capture the Supreme Court and distract the public from their economic looting with culture wars and hot-button issues. Joining us is Nancy McLean, a distinguished professor of history and public policy at Duke University and award-winning scholar of the 20th century United States. Her books include Behind the Mask of Chivalry, Freedom is Not Enough, and Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Right Stealth Plan for America. We'll discuss her article with Lisa Graves at The Progressive, The Billionaire Kingmaker Still Dividing the Nation, Despite a Rebrand, Charles Koch Won't Stop Until U.S. Democracy is Dead. Then finally, we'll look into President Biden's visit to Mexico City, where he is meeting with President López Obrador at the North American Leaders Summit, where the Mexican leader has called on America's right-wing Congress to stop funding the Pentagon and start funding Central American and Caribbean countries in order to stop the flow of refugees to the United States. Joining us is William Leo Grand, a professor of government at American University and a specialist in Latin American politics and U.S. foreign policy towards Latin America. He's been a frequent advisor to government and private sector agencies and has written five books, most recently Back Channel to Cuba, The Hidden History of Negotiations Between Washington and Havana. Previously, he served on the staffs of the Democratic Policy Committee of the United States Senate and the Democratic Caucus Task Force on Central America of the United States House of Representatives. And we'll discuss his article at Responsible Statecraft, Can Chris Dodd Help His Friend Biden Save U.S.-Cuba Relations? And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for background briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Andre Pagliarini, who is a professor of history at Hamden Sydney College, who is currently preparing a book manuscript on 20th century Brazilian nationalism, and he has an article at the New Republic, The Pro-Bolsonaro Riot in Brasilia Was Nothing Like the January 6th Insurrection, For Better and Worse. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andre Pagliarini. Well, thank you for having me back to talk about Brazil. Um, we, you know, we would hope for happier news, but this is what's going on. So thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And let's talk about the better and then the worse. The better seems to be that this 
riot was essentially pathetic. You know, I mean, it's nothing compared to the January the 6th in terms of the violence and the determination and wreaking havoc and destruction inside the U.S. Capitol and desecrating it, etc., and and attempts to murder both Nancy Pelosi and Vice President Pence. Uh, obviously, January the 8th in Brasilia was nothing like January the 6th two years ago because, I guess, to begin with, the Brazilian parliament was not in session, right? That's right. Uh, you know, of course, January 6th, what was happening was a very specific uh, process that day, which was the certification of the vote. So there was kind of this target uh, for the pro-Trump mob to try to stop, right? So the, the energy was focused. Um, yesterday in Brazil, there really wasn't a single event that was happening that they were trying to stop. There was a certification of Lula's victory on December 12th. There was also a, a, a sort of mini uprising, uh, cars set on fire by Bolsonaro supporters um, and so on. Uh, but yesterday, the scale, of course, was 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 much larger. And it wasn't just the legislative that was broken into. It was the presidential palace. It was the Supreme Court. Um, but you know, one major difference, um, several differences, but one that I would begin by highlighting is the fact that on January 6th, uh, Joe Biden, of course, wasn't president yet. He had not been sworn in. And so there was this weird sort of limbo in, 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 uh, in the aftermath. Whereas yesterday, very quickly, Lula and his administration were mounting a vigorous response, uh, for example, by assuming federal control over the capital city. Um, and so this, this, this matters, I think, in, in the days and minutes, uh, in the minutes and days after an event like this, uh, clear authority you know, in the hands of law enforcement that want to see justice done as opposed to stalling or, or, or obfuscating, that, that's been a real important difference. And you were there in Brasilia on January the 1st, were you not, Andre, for the inauguration of Lula? That's right. I was there for the inauguration, which went off without a hitch. And there had been, you know, lots of concern after the second round of the, of the election on October 30th, uh, between then and the inauguration, that there might be something like this, some kind of attempt to overturn the election or prevent Lula from, from taking office. So when things went smoothly on the first, I think there was a, a kind of sigh of relief that now Lula was taking power. Um, they had not succeeded in keeping him. But, you know, in hindsight, um, I'm kind of surprised by the lack of security uh, in, in Brasilia on the whole. I went early to where the inauguration festivities were, were happening because there had been reports that there would be a, a rigorous security uh, mechanism in place. You know, that they'd be searching backpacks, there'd be metal detectors. I saw none of that. Um, and this is one of the things that Lula's justice minister um, indicated yesterday that, that he's going to be looking into is the extent to which the federal district, the capital uh, of Brasilia, which is governed by a Bolsonaro supporter, to what extent the security situation has been deliberately kept in a kind of a, a, a loose state, whether the insecurity is deliberate, in other words. So that, that'll be an interesting thing to watch, because it did feel, aside from my hotel, which was across the street from Lula's, where there was a lot of police and, and security, other than that, the city felt pretty much wide open, which, you know, was not in line with the concerns about what might happen. So in hindsight, I think that should have been a, a, a red flag. But you mentioned, Andre, that Lula already has moved to take over federal control 
of Brasilia from the local state control of the Bolsonaro sympathizer or ally. He's also moved, has he not, to tighten controls on the use of weapons, which Bolsonaro loosened. That's right. On the very first day in office, uh, Lula signed a whole suite of uh, executive measures, including things related to to, uh, deforestation and trying to rein that in, um, but also having to do with firearms. Brazil, before Bolsonaro, had very strict laws governing who can own guns, under what circumstances you can own guns. Well, a major Bolsonaro policy was loosening those laws, making it easier for people to own firearms. And so one of the things Lula made a point of tackling throughout the campaign was that that's a kind of crazy um, thing to do in a country that doesn't have a real gun tradition. It's not like in the United States where there you know, are gun clubs and shooting ranges. That's growing in Brazil, but it's not you know, a longstanding tradition. Um, one wonders how much worse yesterday could have been if – more of the Bolsonaro supporters had been armed, if they had assault rifles, if they had, you know, uh, ready access to firearms. Fortunately, that was not really the case. There wasn't like a shootout of any kind. Um, nobody's life was seriously threatened by, you know, legislators like in like January 6th in the United States. Uh, so it could have been a lot worse in terms of the violence. Uh, and fortunately, when the state forces did step in, um, they were able to round up hundreds of people involved uh, relatively safely and peacefully. Well, the one thing, though, that has been exported from the United States to Brazil has been evangelical religious right politics. But interestingly enough, it seems that even though obviously they voted for Bolsonaro, this evangelical Protestant movement, some of the conservative alternatives to Bolsonaro like Hamilton Bura, the former deputy president, and Tarcisio de Freitas, Bolsonaro's former infrastructure minister, recently elected as governor of Sao Paulo, they seem to be sort of moving in to take his people in and without all of the baggage of Bolsonaro, which is it's sort of happening here, isn't it, in a way with the governor of Florida challenging Trump without Trump's baggage. I think the race is on after this in Brazil to rehabilitate a Bolsonarismo without Bolsonaro, or like in this country, right? A Trumpism without Trump. I think that's right. I think especially after yesterday, uh, Bolsonaro and his sons politically are are greatly diminished. Uh, the former president had already been fading somewhat. He kind of left in the middle of the night, you know, before... Lula was inaugurated so that he wouldn't have to hand over power. Uh, There's reports that he's concerned about being arrested. So he left sort of unceremoniously. And many of his former allies said, you know, this guy is a joke. He never managed to position himself as a long-term leader of the right. And so especially given what happened yesterday, one could imagine uh, a kind of turning point in the relationship of right-wing voters in Brazil and politicians and the, you know their leaders. Um, as you mentioned, there are a number of figures who would love to appeal to that electorate um, while presenting a more moderate, in, air, in I kind of put those in quotes, a kind of on the surface a more moderate appearance, but to carry out a similar kind of economic agenda. Tarcísio de Freitas, the new governor of São Paulo, is a perfect example. He was Bolsonaro's uh, infrastructure minister, and his whole campaign was about how 
He's not an ideologue. He's a technical figure. He looks at, you know, numbers and budgets and, and he delivers on that front. Um, and so I, I suppose uh, kind of best case scenario when it comes to the right wing in Brazil is that it moves away from the most re, you know, kind of reactionary, violent tendencies of Bolsonarismo towards a, a slightly more sort of center right, perhaps, uh, uh, opposition. I, I, I suppose that, that that might be the best case scenario is that that opposition is at least, you know, respecting the bounds of formal democracy, which Bolsonaro has never in his adult life committed himself to. And I understand that Bolsonaro is being derisively referred to in Brazil as Florida man, right? Because he's holed up in Florida. Right. And this is, you know, he's uh, why he's become the subject of some ridicule. Before he left the country, uh, while thousands of Bolsonaro supporters were camped out outside of military barracks across the country, urging the armed forces to intervene, there was a sort of mini-scandal when Bolsonaro's son, uh, a, a member of Congress, was filmed at the World Cup. Uh, you know, and so there was this kind of juxtaposition saying that the, the supporters, the hardcore supporters, are in the rain, they're camping out in these really difficult circumstances, while the president's son, who should be among the most invested in overturning the election from their point of view, was away partying at a very expensive you know, uh, box at the World Cup. Something similar now is that there's a real sense among many Bolsonaro supporters that he's abandoned them. He's abandoned the fight, that he's not the sort of tough uh, leader that he projected. This is why I say I think what we may be seeing, and I'm a historian, so I hesitate to predict, but I think we might be seeing a, a kind of slight move away from Bolsonaro. I think Bolsonaro is fading. I think the challenge that we saw yesterday is larger now than the than the former president. It's larger than his failed bid. It's larger than you know his own political destiny. It's about what he activated. And he activated a longstanding hostility among many Brazilians to the prospect of mass popular democracy. Well, he earned 58 million votes and Lula got 60 million. So it was a reasonably close election, but it does seem like Lula really took a very strong stance in his speech denouncing what happened yesterday. He denounced fascist vandals, Nazi Stalinists, and then he said, no, not Stalinist, fascists. So what? <laughs> I'm not right. sure what the difference is. I mean, Putin is a Stalinist. He's also a fascist. Right. He was going through, you know, all, all these sort of epithets and he said Nazis, Stalinists. And that's when he caught himself and said, well, not 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 Stalinists, you know, but fascists. Uh, and, you know, part of the challenge Lula will face, of course, he already faced this before yesterday, is mending the political divide, whether that's possible or not. Uh, and there are some who said, well, you know, kind of name calling isn't going to do it. But, you know, I, I think we're sort of past that. I mean, they, they, we're talking about people who are, have broken several laws in doing what they did yesterday. And, you know, it's not necessarily about winning these people over. When I say that Bolsonaro is not a movement that represents democracy, it's not that they didn't contest an election. They did. You know, they, they, the, the president ran. He, he lost. But it's respecting the outcome. Right. And that's where this movement is. Uh, it has fallen short of its democratic obligations. It's not recognizing that Lula was the, the winner, and and with that come certain obligations in a democracy. You know, you you rally, and you prepare for the next run. This is what Lula said yesterday when he addressed the nation. He said, "I ran three times. I never did anything like this. I lost before I won. Uh, 
And what did I do? I, I, I campaigned harder. And so that is the fundamental, I think, breach that Bolsonarismo represents in, in Brazilian politics is that it's not serious about consolidating or building democracy. It only you know, invests in democracy when it prevails. And that's a really dangerous political movement in a country that, of course, has a history of anti-democratic interventions from the armed forces and authoritarian leaders. So that's one thing that you know I am, have been happy to see that Brazilian officials and politicians uh, and the major news media uh, outlets all seem on the same page, that what happened yesterday needs to be strongly condemned and you know ground to a halt. Well, using the word fascist sort of reminded me a little of the stirring speech that Hakeem Jeffries made after Kevin McCarthy finally got his speakership after 15 rounds, and as he was introducing him, he made this amazingly powerful speech, which was completely extemporaneous and really sort of reminded me of Obama's famous speech where he got national attention. Hakim Jeffries used the F word fascist as, as well. How else do you describe these provocateurs like Ali Alexander, who organized the January 6th, or one of the organizers of the January 6th insurrection? And and Stephen Bannon, who on social media have been echoing all of the same lies about January the 6th in the context of Bolsonaro, saying he, he the election was stolen from him, et cetera, et cetera. And so they've been feeding what goes for the Bolsonaro insurrectionists. Obviously, it was a, a pathetic coup attempt compared to what happened here. But still, the same players seem to be involved on the U.S. side as cheerleaders. Right. And this is something that I, I would argue is somewhat distinctive about Bolsonarismo within the context of Brazilian conservatism is the extent to which it kind of apes the the stylings and the, 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 the grievances of the Trumpist right in the United States. Uh, traditionally, you know, Brazil has a, obviously a long conservative tradition of conservative leaders and conservative thinkers. Uh, but Bolsonarismo is, really is a kind of pale imitation in a lot of ways of the stylings of Trump, the alt-right, the online right that you know has kind of dominated Republican politics in recent years, um, from the the fights that it picks to the language that it uses. So you know it shouldn't surprise us that there was so much, uh, there was such an incestuous relationship between Trump's circle and Bolsonaro's uh, circle. Now, one of the things that the Justice Minister said yesterday is that they are committed to a full investigation of those who not only were involved on the ground, who actually broke into these these buildings, but those who financed them, those who helped organize them. And that could lead to some interesting uh, culprits, some interesting findings. Um, a major thing to watch in the weeks and months ahead is the extent to which the United States cooperates with that. So there, yesterday there were calls already from several members of Congress, Joaquin Castro, uh, AOC, among others, urging the United States government not to harbor Bolsonaro, to cancel his visa, to, to extradite him back to Brazil so he could face uh, potential charges there for his involvement. Uh, most analysts say that that's unlikely to happen, but it's something to watch, whether that pressure mounts on the Biden administration to do something about Bolsonaro, who is here in the United States under very kind of dubious circumstances. It's not clear what exactly he's doing here. He came here on the... Brazilian equivalent of Air Force One, uh, the, the presidential plane, even though he had no official business in the United States. So technically, he, he should not have been allowed to do that in the first place. 
So there's a real, real kind of sketchiness around Bolsonaro's presence in the United States that will, I think, be the subject of some real scrutiny uh, going forward. Well, maybe he knows something <laughs> that he's done that could land him in an orange jumpsuit. So maybe he's sort of seeking refuge here. Is that a possibility? Oh, oh absolutely. Uh, you know, whether the United States or in Italy, uh, there are reports that uh, his family members were seeking Italian citizenship, uh, which is relatively easy to get if you can prove, right, that there's a there's a, a connection there with uh, with Italy. Um, so I think it's very clear that the Bolsonaro family and the president and his sons are really concerned about investigations that when they were in office, they were able to kind of sit on and, and nothing really moved forward. Um, this is part of the reason they were so desperate, of course, to stay in power, is that there are a lot of separate lines of investigation uh, for different different matters that could feasibly result in the president's former president's arrest. Uh, and so I, I, I noted um, when this was all happening, it was all just starting, that I don't think Bolsonaro is going to come, be in any hurry to ever come back to Brazil after this, because, uh, you know, if anything, yesterday and many, many uh, political players, it was reported today, are noticed are noting this uh, yesterday, just dramatically heightened the chance that Bolsonaro will end up being arrested. Don't want to get ahead of ourselves, of course. But uh, as I say, it's something to watch. How is he in the United States um, and, and whether that changes, whether his um, citizen, uh, his uh, immigration status comes under further scrutiny. It'll be interesting to watch. Well, he could seek refuge in Mar-a-Lago. And as it happens, Bolsonaro's son is visiting Mar-a-Lago today. I well, think uh, what's funny about that is, is, is that, you know, when, uh, when Bolsonaro left on New Year's, uh, I guess it was two days before New Year's, the report was that he was going to spend the New Year in, in Mar-a-Lago. Um, but turns out he either didn't get an invitation or he was rebuffed or they couldn't work out the logistics. It turns out he's just at the house of a Brazilian UFC fighter uh, near Disney World in Orlando. So it's not even clear to what extent Trump wants to be associated with, you know, a guy who is now a clear loser. Right. Oh, God, you can't have losers. I thank you for joining us, Andre. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me again to talk about Brazil. It's always a pleasure, despite the, the subject today. <laughs> Well, again, I've been speaking with Andre Pagliari. Again, I've been speaking with Andre Pagliarini, who is a professor of history at Hamden Sydney College, who is currently preparing a book manuscript on 20th century Brazilian nationalism. And he has an article of the New Republic, The Pro Bolsonaro Riot in Brasilia was nothing like the January 6th insurrection, for better and worse. We're going to take a brief station break back looking into how Kevin McCarthy has been installed as speaker by the same oligarchy that financed Trump and the MAGA Warriors to capture the Supreme Court and distract the public from their economic looting with culture wars and hot-button issues. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Nancy McLean, a distinguished professor of history and public policy at Duke University, an award-winning scholar of the 20th century United States. Her books include Behind the Mask of Chivalry, Freedom is Not Enough, and Democracy in Chains, 
the deep history of the radical right stealth plan for America. And she has an article with Lisa Graves at The Progressive, The Billionaire Kingmaker Still Dividing the Nation. Despite a rebrand, Charles Koch won't stop until U.S. democracy is dead. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nancy McLean. It's good to be uh, with you again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Nancy. And it seems hardly an accident or a coincidence that Kevin McCarthy is unctuously thanking Donald Trump. And he's basically been installed as speaker by the same oligarchy that financed Trump and the MAGA Republicans to capture the Supreme Court and distract the public from their economic looting with culture wars and hot-button issues. So it seems to me with the Freedom Caucus now controlling the House, that is really what the agenda is, right? We're going to have distraction after distraction after distraction. Isn't that the cynical plan? Uh, Yes. I mean, I think that uh, what we're seeing is that the billionaire donors have created a kind of Frankenstein uh, and the uh, new majority that that is backing uh, McCarthy is going to be able to essentially veto anything that comes out of the House. A friend of mine jokes that he should be taking Warren Bobart to meetings with uh, um, Joe Biden because she's going to be able to veto anything he, he he does, McCarthy, at this point with the agreements he's made, um, and that holds for all of them. But I think what we have to do, too, because, you know, some of these figures are just so outrageous and so appalling, you know, very much in the model of Donald Trump, is we have to also take a breath and see how they got there and whose bidding ultimately they are doing. And when we do that, we can see that the donors like Charles Koch and the network of uh, multi-billionaire and multi-millionaire donors he's assembled have worked hard over a few decades now to rig the rules of our democracy. One of the ways they've done that is through funding uh, the big gerrymander in 2010 and subsequent redistricting efforts. And those efforts have altered the incentives of Republican politics because they created so many totally safe seats and they primaried so many more reasonable Republicans that now all that's left is the crazies and the way that you get elected in a Republican uh, district now in many cases is to be more right wing and more incendiary than the person that you are replacing. So they have absolutely sown the harvest that we are now seeing. And some of these donors, especially Club for Growth, continue to invest in these figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene, like Lauren Bobart, like Gosar, you know, and all those other ones who uh, didn't even think Kevin McCarthy was right wing enough. Well, indeed, these oligarchic control super PACs bankrolled by billionaires like the banking scion Timothy Mellon, Blackstone CEO Stephen Schwartzman, and Citadel CEO Kenneth Griffin, as well as the Koch Network, they have funneled through the Congressional Leadership Fund and the Club for Growth. In terms of this, the Congressional Leadership Fund, they spent $260 million during 2022 helping the Freedom Caucus in this election cycle. So that's the mechanism here. So, I mean, one of the more cynical things is that McCarthy promised to hold a vote on a budget that will balance the deficit in a decade and cap discretionary spending levels at fiscal 2022, thereby opening the way for more tax cuts and bigger tax loopholes. But also during these negotiations with 
these big oligarchical super PACs to make McCarthy Speaker, the two super PACs agreed not to spend money in future open seat primaries in safe Republican districts, uh, which is exactly um, what you're talking about. So they're yeah, working very hand in interesting glove. that once people like Lauren Bobart got in, she almost lost her seat in the most recent election. I think it was something like four five hundred and fourteen votes or something. It was really a squeaker. And now look what they're doing, trying to pull the door closed behind them and say, we primaried, you know, more reasonable folks to get here. But now we don't want to be primaried by anyone else. So, yeah, the cynics are in charge uh, and lunatics are in charge of the asylum. uh, But this is all happening um, with donor money. And I think that that is something that all of us need to keep the focus on, that dark money in politics is really undermining, you know, honest information and democracy in politics, et cetera. Um, But also, I'd like to suggest that the agenda is much larger than just tax cuts for the extremely wealthy. You know, they already achieved that through the Trump tax bill. I think what they will use the uh, deficit hawk um, rhetoric to do, which was conveniently forgotten about when Trump was running up the deficit, but what they will use it to do now when they talk about balancing the budget is achieving things that the radical right has wanted for decades now, above all the privatization or you know near privatization of Social Security and Medicare. So I think you know, we can expect that to be foremost, you know, sudden talk of extending the retirement age, of creating more private accounts, of doing all these things that would be, you know, sort of the slow, you know, cook the lobster in a pot route to full privatization, ultimately, if they had their way of Social Security and Medicare. Now, luckily, because uh, so many Democrats understood the threat of MAGA and that it was much bigger than Trump um, and that these election deniers were a danger. Uh, we saw a really good mobilization in swing states uh, in the midterms, if not in complacent places like New York and California, which gave McCarthy his majority. But um, but we did see that mobilization so that anything that comes out of McCarthy's house is going to face a Democratic majority in the Senate and, of course, President Biden. So I do think that the the really impressive mobilization of progressives in the midterms has bought us a little breathing room. But that breathing room really needs to be used, in my view, to expose just how radical and destructive uh, this right-wing agenda is. Um, And secondly, to lay the groundwork for super mobilization in 2024, including mobilizations behind what I think of now as the red curtain, the majority of states that are now controlled by Republicans, where in fact there was a red wave um, uh, in those states that solidified Republican control. So we have got to focus on you know, the whole country and on uh, winnable districts in every state. Well, it does seem that the Freedom Caucus, which we know is basically dedicated to destroying government, they don't believe in government, mm-hmm. and they're about to show us <laughs> their, their work in that regard. And what they have in common with Grover Norquist, the head of the Club for Growth, um, which is financed by these oligarchs I mentioned earlier, he, of course, famously said that he wants to shrink government down to the point where you can drown it in a bathtub. So on the surface, they would seem to have the same agenda. Uh, but this right-wing oligarchy doesn't want to destroy government. Uh, 
it needs government subsidies and loan guarantees and bailouts and contracts and, in a sense, what you could call right-wing welfare. And, of course, more than anything, it wants to lower taxes. In order to do that, that requires the government to spend less. So that's their agenda, isn't it, to go after Social Security and Medicare and then basically, once they've cut that money, then they can turn around and get the tax cuts that they want. Uh, I think I I, I certainly agree that um, uh, tax cuts for the ultra wealthy is very important to to this crowd. But I think that significantly understates how uh, transformative their vision is. Uh, You know, they not only want, uh, you know, tax cuts, but they want to do things again, like privatize public education, privatize, you know, uh, federal uh, lands, privatize national parks, privatize the postal service. You know, we could go on. People really need to understand that the radical libertarian donors and strategists behind all of this, behind the Tea Party, which generated the Freedom Caucus, which, you know, helped bring us Trump and all this mayhem, they believe that government has only three legitimate functions to provide for the national defense, to ensure the rule of law, and to guarantee social order. So in the world of radical, sharp, extreme inequality that they are creating, ultimately, we are going to see more of what? Armies, courts, and police. Um, So it's not just about tax cuts. It will be about violently repressing the inevitable reaction to the growth of extreme inequality in America. And I think one way of understanding um, how much they get what they're doing is, is to look at this attack that we've seen on the schools. Ever since the police murder of George Floyd um, and the national mobilization of good people of all backgrounds, including millions of whites who were horrified by that police murder, there has been a desire to address systemic racism. This systemic racism that's been built into America, you know, from slavery and the racial capitalism that ensued. The libertarian right is dead set opposed to any kind of civil rights reform, much less um, addressing systemic racial inequity. And almost immediately after that mobilization, we saw this attack seemingly out of nowhere on critical race theory in the schools, which was completely bogus and in a concocted way of attacking, again, any kind of anti-racism, any kind of push uh, to address racial injustice, to create more equity. So they are using this to deliberately uh, incite their base, deliberately um, not just capitalizing on racism, but but really pouring gasoline on it. And they use that around the country to achieve power, particularly in red states. So I would say, watch Ron DeSantis in Florida and what he's doing. Ron DeSantis has libertarian commitments as far as property rights, anti-labor, you know, anti-government are concerned, but he is also lining up to be the leading kind of proto-fascist candidate in 2024. And he's doing that by deliberately inciting uh, racism uh, against African-Americans, you know, through creating phony threats 
um, uh, in the schools and also attacking lesbian and gay uh, uh, Americans and, and others he believes can be, you know, are vulnerable and can be uh, used to gen up support from the base and particularly really emotional and activist on the street support. So we are we are dealing with a radical right that is no longer simply cynical, uh, big corporate money and wealthy individuals, but one that has come more and more to see that its interests rely on uh, developing, again, this kind of MAGA, as President Biden called it, semi-fascist uh, uh, base to carry out the will of the donors. So we are into really frightening territory um, that very much evokes, uh, you know, the tactics of strong men from Mussolini forward. Um, so it's very important that people inform themselves and get engaged in, in the political process if they don't want the future they are starting to see outlined. Well, at the bottom line, of course, Nancy McLean, is that these donors, these right-wing donors to Trump and the MAGA people and the, and the Freedom Caucus and to Ron DeSantis, they want to continue to basically loot the economy, don't they, and, and gain more from the economy, create more, as you point out, more division and more inequality. But in order to do that, they need these MAGA culture warriors to keep America divided over these Absolutely. extraneous issues like abortion, guns, gay rights, immigration, voting rights. Well, I'd have to disagree with you that an, uh, abortion is an extraneous issue. You know, for a woman, it's a, a fundamental no. element of self-determination um, and the ability to plan one's life. But I think that the, the point that you're getting at, that the, right. the oligarchs could never succeed without the culture wars, is absolutely true. You know, they need to keep people not just distracted, but also in a state of high alarm. And I think right. that's another thing people need to be aware of, is just how cynical and strategic, this cultivation of tribal fear um, and antagonism is by the right. You know, um, communication scholars have studied Fox News, you know, let alone Breitbart and the others. But um, and what they've found is, you know, it's not about imparting news, certainly not the host shows like Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram and, and those people. Um, it's really about cultivating this embattled white Christian identity and making the people who have that identity believe that the people who don't are um, dismissing them, are dissing them, are hating on them, are going to ruin their lives. And you can hear that rhetoric over and over right. again if you watch the most skilled of these people do that. So they are, are, are trying to incite Literally, you know, what what um, uh, evolutionary uh, biologists call the reptilian brain, right? right. The, the tribal response the, the fight or flight. Yeah, exactly. And so so this is just so calculated sure. um, that it is really um, it's really, uh, you know, diabolical. Right. <laughs> Sorry, but, that, but, that but at the, the end, it. right. But at the end of the day, Nancy, it, the purpose is so that most Americans won't wake up and see and wonder where all the money went and why they can't have health care and decent jobs and decent paying jobs and child care, et cetera. And that's uh, and that, the that's American exactly tragedy. exactly right. The, mm. Because in, in, if you look at the actual issues and where people stand when they're presented with the issues, 
There is vast majority support, including in some cases, even majority Republican support for things like taxing the ultra wealthy more to pay for the things we need, you know, protecting the quality of our air and water, ensuring better schools. You know, all of these things have broad support when the rational brain is functioning. But when they incite the culture wars, when they have, you know, their base believing that they are victims of aggressive others who are trying to take from them and ruin their America, then all bets are off because then you have the tribal, irrational, you know, quickly responding brain that that wipes out the capacity to think rationally. So, you know, again, it is a diabolical setup, but the more I think that people understand what the game is, the better they can interrupt, you know, the synapses, as it were, um, Mm -hmm. that the right is exploiting. Well, Nancy McLean, I thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure, Ian. Take care. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Nancy McLean, who's a distinguished professor of history and public policy at Duke University, an award-winning scholar of the 20th century United States. Her books include Behind the Mask of Chivalry, Freedom is Not Enough, and Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Right Stealth Plan for America. And she has an article with Lisa Graves that the progressive, the billionaire kingmaker still dividing the nation. Despite a rebrand, Charles Koch won't stop until U.S. democracy is dead. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking to President Biden's visit to Mexico, where he's meeting with President Lopez Obrador, who called on America's right-wing Congress to stop funding the Pentagon and start funding Central American and Caribbean countries in order to stop the flow of refugees into the United States. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is William Leo Grant, who's a professor of government at American University and a specialist in Latin American politics and U.S. foreign policy towards Latin America. He's been a frequent advisor to government and private sector agencies and has written five books, most recently Back Channel to Cuba, the Hidden History of Negotiations Between Washington and Havana, and previously he served on the staffs of the Democratic Policy Committee of the United States Senate and the Democratic Caucus Task Force on Central America of the United States House of Representatives. And he has an article at Responsible Statecraft, Can Chris Dodd Help His Friend Biden Save U.S.-Cuba Relations? Welcome to Background Briefing, William Leo Grant. My pleasure to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us in relations with Cuba, particularly because of the uptick or the massive uptipping in the flow of refugees from Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, which President Biden uh, addressed on Sunday at the border in El Paso. What's your sense then of what the U.S. can actually do? I mean, the reason for, for the outflow, people escaping or wanting to get out of Cuba is something that's been going on for a long time, right? I mean, what what's going on with the Cuban government? Are they, just like Putin's, happy to get rid of a lot of people who have fled because of the objections to the invasion of Ukraine? Isn't the Cuban government taking advantage of the fact that a lot of people who demonstrated recently 
against the government are leaving? I mean, isn't that a kind of ongoing policy to get rid of people that they call gusanos, worms? Well, the Cuban government's attitude towards the Cuban community abroad has changed a lot in recent years because uh, they depend uh, financially on remittances being sent by Cubans abroad. So they don't call them gusanos anymore. Uh, You know, the outflow of people, which has really been enormous, 300,000 to the United States last year and perhaps as much as another 100,000 to Europe, um, causes some real problems for the for the Cuban government. First of all, these people are disproportionately young and well-educated. So uh, the Cuban government spends, as we know, a very large amount of money uh, on its educational system, one of the best educated populations in Latin America. And yet some of the most uh, well-educated and entrepreneurial young people are leaving the country. Uh, the second problem is that Cuba is a very old country. It has a demographic profile similar to developed countries. And as all these young people are leaving, the demographic future for Cuba looks uh, very dire. Uh, They're, within a decade or two, going to have more retired people than they have people in the labor force. And that's just not sustainable. So what is the Cuban government doing to attract and retain its talented young people? Well, the biggest reason that people are leaving is the economic crisis. Uh, The Cuban economy really is in pretty dismal shape as a result of several external shocks. Number one, uh, the Trump administration economic sanctions, which hit Cuba very hard. Number two, COVID, which closed down their tourist industry, which is the largest sector of the domestic economy. And then Hurricane Ian, which just devastated uh, a couple of provinces there. So the economy's in really bad shape. Um, and it, it it's an economy that still has lots of internal structural problems that the government has been trying to reform, but hasn't had a lot of success so far, I have to say. The reforms that have been done have benefited the Cuban private sector, but they haven't really raised the standard of living of ordinary people. And so the result is you've just got a lot of pressure uh, among people to leave because of the economic misery and shortages there. Well, the Biden administration, as your article at uh, Responsible Statecraft, William Leo Grand, uh, can Chris Dodd help his friend Biden save U.S.-Cuba relations, points out that President Biden lifted Trump's restrictions on remittance and restored the people-to-people travel license under which most U.S. residents visit Cuba before Trump abolished it. And, of course, Trump was probably doing that under pressure from the Miami Cubans, represented by Senator Marco Rubio, and that's always been counterintuitive, hasn't it? I mean, that's been a curse on American foreign policy, that you have the tail that wags the dog in terms of the exile community in Miami dictating a counterintuitive policy that has basically, if it done anything, it's kept the Castro government in power forever and resulted in, the, in misery for the Cuban people. And one of the best things that happened was as you point out, is the remittances coming from the diaspora and the flights that came in and out, which was also accompanied tourism, which you pointed out is is Cuba's biggest industry. So can the exile community ever get educated to the 
counterintuitive policies that they've enacted for the last 60 or 70 years? You know, the, the politics of the exile, Cuban exile community in Florida are, are complicated. Um, just a few years ago, uh, when President Obama opened up relations with Cuba, uh, a majority of Cuban Americans supported that policy. Then President Trump came in, uh, reversed just about everything that Obama had done in terms of trying to normalize relations with Cuba, and a majority of Cuban Americans supported that policy as well. So Cuban Americans, like most Americans, tend to follow the lead of their president. If their president says, uh, we're going to make peace with this country, then they tend to think that that's a good thing. And if their president says, this country is an enemy and, and we need to have tough policies, that people tend to go along with that. Uh, the problem, I think, with the Biden administration and a lot of Democratic presidents before President Obama is that uh, they were just afraid of alienating uh, the Cuban-American community in Florida by, by opening up to Cuba. Uh, and that was because of the Cuban community's strategic position in Florida and their willingness to vote on this issue in presidential elections, and the fact that Florida was a swing state in presidential elections. Well, remember, of course, Al Gore lost Florida by 537 votes. Um, now, the recent elections in Florida have showed that Florida has trended more red toward Republicans. And uh, I, I've argued that uh, that shift is something that really probably puts Florida out of reach in presidential politics, and that that really ought to give President Biden uh, some political space to pursue a policy that is based on the foreign policy interests of the United States rather than domestic electoral calculations. Well, surely Biden must have been involved in President Obama's initiatives to rebuild connections and restore relations with Cuba, which were brokered by the Pope, were they not? They were indeed. So yeah, I, I don't. I mean, I, I you know, the, <laughs> Senator Dodd recently in an interview was asked uh, this very question: Is that well, you know, wasn't President or wasn't Vice President Biden on board with Obama's uh, opening to Cuba, and why hasn't he, uh, you know, returned to that policy? And Senator Dodd said, "Well, I don't think." Yes, he was on board with Obama's policy, and I don't think his views on that have changed, but it's politically complicated. And by that, I think uh, Senator Dodd was referring not only to Cuban-Americans in Florida, but also to the fact that Senator uh, Bob Menendez of New Jersey, a Cuban-American uh, U.S. senator and Democrat, is chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and in a position to make Biden's life pretty miserable if President Biden adopts a Cuba policy that Senator Menendez doesn't like. And, of course, in November, Biden appointed former Senator Christopher Dodd as his special presidential advisor for the Americas. So how broad is that portfolio? Does it involve... Issues involving, for example, Sunday's trip to El Paso and the border. Obviously, there is this plan underway to allow refugees from Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua into the country on, on the basis of a quota, where the, but they have to fly in as opposed to cross other countries. And I'm not sure how practical that is. 
Well, I suspect that Senator Dodd's uh, brief is is very broad in terms of the Americas. Migration, of course, is as much a domestic issue as it is a foreign policy one. So Senator Dodd obviously wouldn't be the only person involved in, in, that, in that decision. Um, but migration is clearly a critical issue, um, not only with regard to Cuba, but with regard to Mexico and Central America and Venezuela. Uh, so it, it's an unavoidable issue, if you will. I think the appointment of, of Senator Dodd is significant. I think it's a result of the embarrassment that the president suffered at the Ninth Summit of the Americas uh, last year when you had a partial boycott um, because the administration refused to invite uh, Cuba, Nicaragua or Venezuela to participate. And and. You know, today, every major country in Latin America has a government that is uh, a left-wing government of one sort or another. Uh, of course, you have very radical governments in Venezuela and Nicaragua, but you also have sort of social democratic governments in places like Colombia and Chile, and uh, Lula has just been reelected in Brazil. So the administration is going to have to come to terms with the fact that just about everyone in Latin America thinks that our current Cuba policy doesn't make sense, and they want to see it changed. Well, they're right, aren't they? Well, I, I think they are. I don't think that the policy of hostility serves the uh, the interests of the United States. There are just a lot of issues uh, that really can that are important to the United States that can only be solved by talking with the Cubans and and dealing with these issues that uh, are transnational, if you will, right? Environmental protection, uh, combating narcotics trafficking, um, uh, public health. These are issues that sort of don't respect uh, national borders. And Cuba's a close neighbor, and we can't move away from it. So uh, if we want to make progress on some of these issues, uh, we really have to talk to the Cubans about them. And the more normal a relationship uh, that we have with the island, I think, um, the better it is for both the people of the United States and the people of Cuba. So presumably at the Summit of North American Leaders underway in Mexico City, hosted by AMLO, President López Obrador, who, as you pointed out, back in early 2022, boycotted the Summit of the Americas here in Los Angeles because the Cubans and the Venezuelans and, and Nicaraguans were, leaders were not invited. So presumably he's, he's going to be an advocate for what you're talking about, right, with both President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada. Well, I think there's no doubt that he will. And uh, my I suspect that, that Prime Minister Trudeau is going to um, also be in favor of uh, a U.S. return to a policy of normalization of relations with Cuba. Um, and, you know, I think that the President Biden is open to uh, some degree of improvement. I mean, we've seen a number of signs lately that the administration is interested in um, relaxing tensions, and the Cubans have been, generally speaking, responsive to that. Migration talks were reopened uh, last year after a, a four, well, three-year hiatus uh, during the Trump administration, and we've seen some uh, some new agreements, um, uh, at least new cooperation between the two countries on migration issues. Uh, there's been a reopening of diplomatic dialogue on some other issues of mutual interest, like the ones I mentioned. 
Uh, in May, of course, as, as you were saying, uh, the Biden administration did relax Trump's sanctions on travel and remittances. We haven't seen a lot of practical effect of that yet because there's other things the administration would need to do to make those really effective, but it's a step in the right direction. Um, and of course, the United States offered uh, Cuba humanitarian assistance after Hurricane Ian, and the Cubans, for the first time, were willing to accept that. So there's there's a general sense that uh, that momentum is building a little bit towards uh, a better relationship. Well, the Cubans apparently agreed that the remittances no longer go through the hands of the Cuban military, who obviously were taking a cut. So. That's an improvement for sure, but Canada's also always had an interest in Haiti, and Haiti is essentially a failed state run by gangs, and it's absolutely unlivable and totally brutal and insane what's happening there, and that's a cause of a flow of immigrants into the U.S. via the southern borders, particularly at the border crossing in El Paso, along with Nicaragua and Cuba. So at the end of the day... And this was always clear from when Vice President Kamala Harris was given this portfolio of, of trying to help the countries of Guatemala, uh, Honduras, and El Salvador deal with their internal problems so that there wouldn't be such an outflow of refugees. That's not necessarily going that well, although there's been an improvement in Honduras with a new government there, but you still have a corrupt government in both Guatemala and El Salvador. So... At the end of the day, in the last couple of minutes here, William Leo Grand, what can the U.S. do to stabilize these other governments in Central America and the Caribbean? I don't know how you reach Ortega in Nicaragua, and what can you do about the gangs in Haiti? In other words, is the U.S. responsible for the conditions in these countries? Well, the United States is at least partially responsible for the conditions in some of the Central American countries because we fueled internal civil wars there in the 1980s. And what we're seeing now is the aftermath of, of the destruction of, of those years. But trying to um, give people a reason to stay at home in their own country rather than come to the United States is a long-term project. One has to invest a lot of resources in uh, building uh, sustainable economies there, trying to help straighten out governments to make them uh, more effective, to, you know, good governance there. But there's an enormous irony. Here the United States is literally spending um, millions, if not billions of dollars trying to um, help the, the economies and build the economies of uh, these countries so that people will have economic opportunity at home and not come uh, as migrants to the United States. And in Cuba, we're doing exactly the opposite. We have a policy of sanctions designed to cripple the Cuban economy and make it more difficult for Cubans to live a decent life in Cuba. And then we wonder why they show up on the U.S. border. Well, William Leah Grant, your point is well taken, and I thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. 
And again, I've been speaking with William Leo Grant, who's a professor of government at American University and a specialist in Latin American politics and U.S. foreign policy towards Latin America. He's been a frequent advisor to government and private sector agencies and has written five books, most recently Back Channel to Cuba, The Hidden History of Negotiations Between Washington and Havana, and previously he served on the staffs of the Democratic Policy Committee of the United States Senate and the Democratic Caucus Task Force on Central America of the United States House of Representatives. And he has an article at Responsible Statecraft, Can Chris Dodd Help His Friend Biden Save U.S.-Cuba Relations? This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America My quiet boss singing something to me Teacher and the other became